Welcome back to the 170th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the current fighting going on within Israel and how it shows a little bit of a hole in the Biden foreign policy. Another article talking about how the billionaire class is winning. And the last article is talking about how the U.S. government wants to turn fentanyl into a WMD. Before we go any further, I just want to say my heart goes out to the people of Israel, the people that are in Palestine that will be affected by this uh, retaliation that Israel is going to bring upon Gaza and Hamas. And all I hope is that we can try to limit the casualties of civilians and I hope it doesn't continue to escalate. I read something this morning about there being a northern front going in or protecting against Jordan and Hezbollah. So it just it feels like it is death upon death upon death. And uh, I just hope that we can come to a better place after this. But it's hard to imagine with the historical strife between both parties or all of the parties there in the Middle East. So let's jump into our daily debate. So what is the, you probably heard VP VP Pence, Vice President Pence, and he made the statement that because of the weakness that the U.S. is showing in Ukraine, it sends a signal to China, but also more recently he said that this is one of the main reasons that this attack in Israel happened because the Hamas government saw the weakness in American foreign policy. They saw the weakness in Israel, and we need to project strength. So what do, you, what do you think about his statements about American weakness in Ukraine projecting the idea that we and our allies are not united, that we're not strong together, that we can't protect one another? Tell me what you think. Throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what you all have to say. So, our first article comes from the New York Post. Hamas's Iranian-backed attack should end Biden's deadly delusion. So, of course, the Biden administration has been going back and forth with Iran. They, as we have gotten plenty of reporting about, they have also sent aid to uh, Gaza, which some people are saying is actually being used by Hamas instead of for humanitarian purposes. It's actually being used for uh, military purposes, whether that be funding or turning some of the supplies that they get into weapons or potential weapons or utilizing them for infrastructure for building out their military capabilities. So, you know, this has been a, a position of multiple, multiple presidents. And it, it tends to skew one way rather than the other in the past few years. But going back before even Clinton, there was a, a mixed stance on the whole issue between uh, Israel and Palestine. But I believe this article by the New York Post will uh, illuminate some more things that not everybody is aware of or at least point out that some of these policies are actually leading to more problems in the Middle East rather than fixing them and trying to bring peace to the area. So what's the framing? How is New York Post framing this? I mean, they normally, most articles set it up within the first paragraph, so you can kind of tell where the author's coming from and where the article will end up and what perspective it will come come from. So 
Let's go to that first paragraph. Quote, Hamas's shock attack on innocent Israelis this weekend should be a blaring wake-up call, not just to Israel, but also to America, the West, and anyone who thinks appeasing evildoers can ensure security. The barbarianism ought to finally shake President Joe Biden's naive view that retreat, misguided diplomacy, and soft power abjectly abandoning Afghanistan, relying purely on threats of sanctions to deter Russia's Ukraine invasion, plying Iran with billions to lure it into a worthless nuclear arms deal, can turn bloodshed or bloodthirsty enemies into peace-loving members of the civilized world. So what they're saying is we have to get rid of that delusion. Quote, in Afghanistan, Biden's hard bug-out date signaled that no matter what deals the Taliban broke or atrocities it perpetuated, the nation was theirs for the taking come September 1st, 2021. End quote. So, this has been a wide-ranging topic uh, since the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the sanctions on Ukraine, the reestablishing of the Iran deal. All the proponents, all the proponents, all the major ones on the right have said over and over again, this signals weakness. This shows our enemies, not just our enemies, our allies' enemies, that we are more into appeasement, that we are more into doing what is best for us without worrying about the consequences, that we are willing to leave behind an entire nation and not necessarily protect everybody who either worked for us or get out the people that were allies to us or just relying on monetary sanctions when it comes to Russia and other leaders. I mean, we've done it with Iran, too. Uh, this idea that we can just limit the amount of money that they get. We can limit their critical infrastructure. We can put... Uh, hard, hard borders or hard lines in the sand with their oligarchs so that they can't get any richer. And then these states just end up subverting it or they join something like BRICS, which is uh, a new way to look at the world and actually an alternative funding method, at least in the ideal world. So, or for them, I should say, not for America. But these are all signs of... I don't want to say weakness because it's still taking a stance, but it is a weaker response than military intervention, which I don't necessarily know if that is the right way forward. If putting boots on the ground or, you know, having drone strikes or, or things of this nature, the, the New York Post, the, the framing here seems to imply that a show of force is necessary rather than these sort of measures that we're currently employing. And, is it really worth the American lives that would possibly be lost? Because if we drone strike a, a hostile enemy or we try to hit some of Taliban's infrastructure in Afghanistan with a drone strike, then next thing you know, tourists who are going to Afghanistan or diplomats in the region or people in a different state who are just near the border, any American could be at risk because of retaliation or some sort of military strike. So, while I agree about the framing that we're definitely doing some things wrong, we're not taking the strongest stance possible. I, I don't know of where the author would want this to end up, which seems, based on the framing, I could be wrong. I would want to hear a little bit more from them personally, 
where this ends up is direct military intervention. And I don't know if that is actually to the U.S.'s benefit any more than appearing a little bit weaker on the world stage. Now, the one that I could definitely agree with is giving billions to Iran. I didn't like the idea of giving them billions not to have a nuclear program when it first happened. I don't enjoy it now when some people are accusing the Iranians of transferring the money that would have gone to aid that now they can get from the United States into programs to support Hamas and Hezbollah for these attacks against um, Israel. So I've never really loved that idea anyway, so I do agree that is a, a form of weakness. But uh, we'll, we'll see how this keeps unfolding. I, I feel as though this narrative of uh, more war, more strongman U.S. politics is going to persist. I don't think the populist or libertarian side of the party is strong enough to really push back against the side that has major military ties to uh, Lockheed Martin and so on and so forth. But at this time, it's a serious conversation that at least needs to be had, especially with the heinous attack that just happened in Israel. There is a conversation that if we weren't, at least needs to be talked about, that if we weren't so I don't want to say pacifist, but if we weren't so hesitant to get involved and to show that we're going to stick up for our allies, that we are going to put pressure on the nations that are trying to subvert peace, then maybe this attack wouldn't have happened. Of course, we can't editorialize. We can't go back and pretend, oh, yeah, this blah, blah, blah would have happened. We have no idea. We don't know. It could have been that if we were more aggressive, then we would have converted more people to the cause, and the attack would have been worse. We can't pretend that we will know those answers. But it's at least a serious question that we have to look at, we have to analyze, and we have to think critically about. So what is the American weakening overall? The New York Post, they have another quote about this where they want to go into it, kind of show some of the symptoms uh, of this weakening and even maybe some of its causes. Quote, the debacle signaled a weakened America no longer willing to defend even its own interests abroad, emboldening Vladimir Putin set his sights on Ukraine. Again, Biden buckled under the threat, ruling out arms shipments to Kiev lethal enough to deter Putin and limiting America's response to pathetically inadequate sanctions. He even suggested a minor incursion into Ukraine might be okay. Putin's invasion has now cost an old untold number of lives, and Biden still is hesitant repeatedly to send Ukraine the advanced weapons it needs to win the war. In the Middle East, Biden has pursued the Obama fantasy that Iran, under a radical regime bent on dominating the region and destroying Israel, can be reformed via enlightened diplomacy in in a large enough pile of cash. Even before sending Tehran a staggering $6 billion in ransom last month for five U.S. hostages and freeing Iranian prisoners to the boot, the president eased sanctions and shipped billions to Iran, hoping to revive the failed 2015 nuclear agreement. End quote. And this is something that money doesn't money doesn't solve everything. Uh, let's be clear, it, the Iranian government needs money to, you know, keep on going. 
but it's a theocracy. They have a absolute iron grip on the country. And I'm not I'm not saying that there aren't dissidents, and I'm not saying the Iranian people don't disagree with their type of governance. They do. They're very strong people who have been out protesting uh, the murder of a young woman who didn't have a shawl. I forget her name, and I feel absolutely terrible. At a recent game in Iran, some of the supporters took down or told people to take down the flags of Palestine after the attacks because they saw it as people supporting the outright heinous and unmoral, the, the, the terrible, terrible attack within Israel. And yes, I'm, I'm sorry if I sound solemn or I'm kind of getting buzzed up about it, but I've, I've seen videos that have come out over the course of the last few days, and it's kind of, I I was watching one, and I just, I had to stop, because it was so gruesome, and I, I, I kept watching, I did after a second to compose myself, but I was just horrified at the, the absolute dehumanization of a certain segment of a population or of the other and how capable humans really are of violence and disgusting behavior. And it really, really frustrates me. And this idea that, hey, we can just give them money and oh, eventually it will be a peaceful region. You know, they will actually come around to Israel. No, no. Hamas and Hezbollah, the or at least Hamas, I can speak to Hamas, because I know what their constitution was when they were elected to the government of Gaza, is outright, it outright states that Israel should not exist as a country. So then when you have Iran funding a group like that, I highly doubt if they don't believe Israel should exist that giving them money will change that. That's like going up to somebody before they go into Walmart and saying, uh, well, you know what, I'm going to give you $100, but... In order to get this $100, I need you to change your belief that what you're going to get in there is Oreos and, you know, uh, Reese's Cups, all the nasty stuff, but you're you're just going to get the good stuff. And the person's going to say, oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. And then that person's still going to go in and get exactly what they want, unless there are monitoring systems where you're actively watching and, and when I say that, actively watching, compelling action, using a little bit of coercion on the ground, literally them over your shoulder watching you pick out your food, just giving out money and having no way to enforce it doesn't change somebody's opinions. And even those course of actions, it doesn't make them actually believe it, it just makes them follow through on it. And if you don't change the belief that Israel should be a nation, once we stop watching, once we stop coercing, they'll find underhanded ways. Maybe you'll slip a little bit of those Oreos underneath the salad bag that you just bought or you, you're trying to buy with that $100 and somebody's watching you. Like, you can't just change people's opinions with money. So pretending that that's the case is ignorant, sad, and we need to take a different approach. That's all I can say. I, I, I just never truly understood why bribing somebody to stop a program that they want to have in order to be a counterweight to Israel, who they think shouldn't exist. It's just idiotic, in my opinion. But that's enough on that terrible, terrible article and that sad, sad conflict in between Israel, Palestine, and now uh, the lower part of Jordan as well. Let's jump to our second article that comes from Counterpunch. Team Billionaire is winning. So 
you know, it's it's an interesting headline to to say the least. Why is Team Billionaire winning? What are they winning at? Is it just overall they're winning in life or they're winning over a certain segment of the population? It was intriguing enough to get me to first read. And there's a paragraph that goes into some of the framing of this after 2008 that I thought was very, very interesting, and I think we should start there. Quote, in the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, virtually all of the country's major banks would have been tossed into the dustbin of history if it had just let the free market work its magic. Somehow, saving Citigroup and Robert Rubin and all the rest is just described as leaving things to the market by progressives. There are, of course, a million and one other ways that we structure the financial sector to benefit the rich. Government deposit insurance, exemption from the sort of sales tax that apply to almost everything else we buy, and non-sequential tax preferences like the carried interest deduction that fuel private equity and hedge funds. Yet, somehow, progressive intellectuals look at all the rich and super-rich in finance and just see the market being left to itself, end quote. So a lot of the idea in this article is that there's actually a misperception in the population, in the people that think about free market economics, or at least economics in the United States, and they seem to perceive the market as a creature in and of itself. The free market is an entity. It has its own ideas. And even I disagree with that framing. Even though I do love the free market system, it is not an entity that operates without any sort of outside influence, especially nowadays. We, we really have more of a mixed economy than anything. The U.S. government is directly telling companies what they should and should not be making. I mean, we even have industries that are totally dependent on government spending, like the arms industry or the pharmaceutical industry, so on and so forth. But moving beyond the idea that we're a mixed economy, this idea that the free market itself is an entity and it can self-correct and everything, that it alone can reveal the truth is just kind of, it's a misunderstanding of the idea of the free market. The free market is not itself alive, but rather it is a amalgamation of decisions made by individuals. The individuals are the ones that shape the free market. Those individuals, in if you're using basic economic terms or the definition you probably heard in your economics class, the people pursuing their own best interests in the market. Sometimes that isn't actually real, and that's why I think economics in general, it's really a theoretical practice, and it's hard to 100% apply to real life because not everybody acts rationally in their own choices. But overall, in theory, and in some degree of practice, if you average out all the unself-interested purchases that people make, then the free market is a conglomeration of individual choices towards a economic end. So you have individuals who buy certain stocks, and that's why the stock price goes up, not the free market looking at it, the shares and saying, oh, yes, they look valuable. Oh, this is this is something that we're going to propagate. And, and let's be clear, I don't think everybody believes the free market is an entity that has its own consciousness. But to just gloss it over and say, oh, yes, it's the free market at work, it kind of actually misses the point. It actually kind of distorts the underlying important conversation that needs to be had, which is why are individuals seeing the value in this, that, or the other? 
So that's the framing that's the problem. And then the article goes on to talk about how U.S. intervention, the government intervention in these different sectors of the market, whether it be bailing out big banks or whether it be giving special uh, tax statuses and credits to different companies, how that's actually, you know, deviating from the pure idea of the free markets, actually changing the way that individuals would perceive the value of something, therefore affecting how the market perceives something, if you want to say the market as an entity. But this is it's a really interesting one, and it's something I've been thinking about really recently, which is to what degree should the government incentivize certain behavior through you know subsidies or tax breaks and things of that nature. And if I was being pure Milton Friedman, I would probably say, oh, no, there, there should be no subsidies. Uh, if you do anything, it should be more on the tax side. It should be tax relief or you know, having different tax breaks rather than giving money out or you know, bailing out the banks, things of that nature. And I, I kind of fall within that category. I, I still have a hard time with subsidies, I won't lie unless they're in the form of tax breaks. But even then, do you want to incentivize behavior? Like, okay, let's look at EVs, for example. Do you really want to incentivize an EV transition to for all the major companies to these electric vehicles if the technology isn't quite there yet, if the demand isn't quite there yet, if you're actually going to force these companies to move in a more EV direction without the demand? yet that exists, that would should exist in order to actually buy up these cars and make it profitable for these automakers, then you're going to have either two things in your hand. Either you're going to cause these companies to shift their direction and then screw them over, but hey, we're meeting our political ends of having an EV revolution, or you're going to have to then force or not force, but you're going to have to manipulate and create the demand through more government policy and intervention. And that is something that I'm worried about. But also, if it's on a social level and we want to encourage more families so we can have more people who participate in society, we can have more intellectuals, more creators, more innovators, or simply just a larger population so that that segment of the population is larger itself, even though it just having more kids doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have more innovators. But having a larger population means the percentage of innovators, while it doesn't change, the proportion of the population doesn't change. There are just more of them because the whole pie is growing. So those sort of policies, you know, there is a place in my heart for that, for more family-oriented subsidies and encouraging people to create families and things like that. And while I don't know if it necessarily is 100% advisable to the government to come in and do that, and I haven't seen all the repercussions economically, I haven't seen the studies about it, it is something close to my heart where I would be more willing to listen to an argument like that than certain subsidies in certain areas. And then again, I also agree that certain subsidies and burgeoning and small industries that we want to be competitive in on the world stage, I can also understand that logic, whether or not it conflicts with my free market brain. When I turn that one on, it is still something that I'm at least willing to listen to. So it is a very complicated one and everybody has lots of different opinions on it. And we all can't be Martin, uh, sorry, Milton, Freeman, where we can just uh, say no, no, none whatsoever, because everybody has their own ends. But I think we can all agree that bailing out the big banks was 
really, it wasn't just about ensuring that, you know, the people, the population, that their savings aren't lost, because why should they be punished for the banks who are doing terrible things with their money? And the argument from the free market side would say, well, there's always a risk when you put your money into banks. So that's why there's the FDIC, so that the depositors can get at least some of their money back. But I think we can all agree that bailing out those Wall Street banks wasn't just in the best interest of the people, but it was also in the best interest of Washington because a lot of their money goes through Wall Street. They have a lot of funds and trusts set up so that the government can fund different programs like Social Security and other ones down the road. So there's entangling of the billionaires and Washington has created a distortion. I think we could at least all acknowledge that. And that distortion, at the end of the day, if it's going to cause the government to do things that are actually, I would argue, against the people's interests, because while the FDIC is meant to ensure the people that are hurt by banks going under, and yes, lots of people would, at the end of the day, lose their money, in the long run, what does it say about the banks and the government's relationship? Oh, the banks can do a little bit of shady stuff and the government will come and bail them out which then means more banks will do shady stuff with investors or just customers' money, which is not good for the customer. But then imagine that one time the government doesn't come and bail them out because they understand that there is a moral hazard here, then those people get screwed. Rather than letting the free market, letting the individuals decide how things will progress, a new bank comes up that's more ethical, more transparent, that's actually better for the consumer, the customer, and the investor. So you can see where I'm coming from here. It is an interesting mix and entanglement of the billionaires and the Washington classes. And it doesn't necessarily hurt them as much as it hurts the average person. So it's something to look out for going into the future. All right, our last article comes from The Intercept. The U.S. government is proposing that fentanyl be classified as a WMD. And they are preparing for a fentanyl attack. So here's the policy, and I'm not going to get too far into this one. I think you should go read this article yourself. It is quite comprehensive, if I'm being honest. But here's the policy that has been proposed. Quote, last year, the White House publicly shot down a controversial proposal from Republican lawmakers to designate fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction, or WMD. Through President Joe Biden's decline to issue the executive order granting the WMD designation, which would have come with extraordinary powers to combat the scourge, federal agencies, including the Department of Defense, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security, had already begun preparing for a fentanyl WMD attack as far back as 2018. Government documents obtained by The Intercept reveal that national security agencies have for years been advancing the narrative that the drug could pose a WMD threat, going so far as conducting military exercises in preparation for an attack by a fentanyl weapon, end quote. So you can see the the dichotomy that's presented here. The White House, Biden, his administration is saying, no, we're not going to label it as a WMD when Republicans put forth legislation saying that it should be classified as such. Yet internally, within the different agencies underneath the White House, they are considering the possibility of a attack using fentanyl 
as a WMD, or a fentanyl-based weapon that could cause mass destruction, therefore, weapon of mass destruction. So it seems like it's a little bit crazy on the top line. They're like, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. The White House is saying, no, we're not going to classify it as a WMD, but agencies that are under the executive branch are already preparing for it to be used in a WMD attack. Well, that seems like a dichotomy. Why wouldn't the White House get behind this? And that's because the Republicans, when they're posing this, they're not just saying as a WMD attack. They're not just saying that it could be weaponized in that fashion. No, they're saying that fentanyl itself is a weapon of mass destruction and that the drug itself coming across the border can be deadly enough to kill millions of people that it doesn't even have to be utilized in a bomb of some sort, like a, a dirty fentanyl bomb or something like that. And I think that there's a good distinction and an important one here. If it's to be weaponized as a in some sort of bomb or something like this, and that is a different case than just the fentanyl coming across the border. And the re reason Republicans want to classify it as a WMD is so that there's a little bit more overarching power that could be used on the governmental level in order to crack down on fentanyl dealers or different users or to crack down on the cartels taking it across the border, saying they're smuggling weapons, essentially. So I, I think there's at least there's a split there. And the end results of both policies will be very different. One will allow the government to crack down on fentanyl as the drug. The other one will allow the different agencies to prepare for a possible attack and create contingency plans in case one happens. And that's why you're seeing this sort of dichotomy. That's why you're seeing what seems to be a little bit of hypocrisy, but is much more detailed and in-depth than it actually is. And I'm just giving a cursory overview of the article. Like I said, please, if there's one article that you're going to read in here that is a little bit different than the others, that is something you probably haven't heard about before, go read this one. The Intercept has done great work. I've always enjoyed their articles. They're normally pretty hard-hitting. They don't tend to be too biased, at least the pure reporting ones, not the opinion ones. So, Go give it a look. It's uh, in the link in the description below the like and subscribe button. So with all of that that we talked about today, and we've talked about some horrific stuff, I, I think we need a little bit of the daily delight. This one comes from Stringer's Hub. And it's a friendly brown bear at a Chinese zoo is greeting visitors with a waving gesture. So, you know, waving, it is a very simple gesture, yet it can convey so much meaning. It can be a, a nice happy wave, a small little wave, uh, you know, the, the crowns wave where you cup your hand a little bit. But this one, this one's a really friendly wave. Quote, a heartwarming video captured a brown bear at a zoo enthusiastically waving and interacting with visitors. End quote. And trust me, this, this bear knows how to placate his fans. He knows how to get to their hearts. Quote, the brown bear displayed impeccable manners as it raised one of its front paws and gently waved in the direction of the tourists, seemingly responding to their greetings and thanking them warmly for their visit, just like a human, end quote. And if you want to see this cute video or any of the photos from it, or read any of today's articles, especially that Intercept one. There's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. Also down there, there's a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, and Podvine, as well as 
the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where you can go listen to the Twitter tirades I put out every Tuesday and Thursday. This last one was a critique of some of, or at least a response to some of Joe Rogan's comments about getting rid of violence and also with the attacks in Israel. It's a great, great display of human violence. So it was a very interesting one where I dive into the moral question of it, the just the overall likelihood that we could actually come to a point where we're perfected and we're no longer violent. I thought it was an interesting one to record, and I really kind of just ranted there for a while. So go check that one out. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.